Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller and on the show. DHS briefs several right-wing extremists on risks to their security from right-wing extremists. This is WBS News Radio. Officials from the Department of Homeland Security briefed several members of the House of Representatives Wednesday on potential risks to their security from right-wing extremists in the wake of the deadly raid on the Capitol building. It was only once they began the briefing that they realized several of the people they were briefing were themselves the right-wing extremists they were referring to. It was really helpful, actually, because we had these perfect visual aids. We didn't have to show photographs of the individuals in question because they were sitting right in front of us. We just pointed. The agents even got help they weren't expecting. Congresswoman Taylor Greene approached us and said she had a tip on a member of Congress who had sympathized with the rioters and was a right-wing extremist. She said this person was also a believer in the QAnon conspiracy theory. She said the person's name was Marjorie Taylor Greene. This is WBS News Radio. And that was WBS Radio, like the onion for your ears, written and produced by Jerome Halligan. And now on Arts Express, Stories from the Stage, a special World Channel presentation by Myowa Lisa Reynolds on Black Identity, Light Skin. I grew up in Detroit, Michigan a beautiful city built by a mighty river, filled with people, black people, most of whom had moved up north from various places in the south to provide a better life for their families. I grew up in a very close-knit neighborhood where everyone watched out for each other. As children, we would play from dawn until dusk, and each family would watch after us. I grew up in a loving family, a kind family, a talented, intelligent, interesting family of black people, all shades of black, from deep, dark chocolate to creamy beige and everything in between. And there was no hierarchy based on skin color. The only time skin color came up was at school with Kids that maybe weren't on my block or I didn't know. Sometimes a kid would approach me and say, is your mama white? With anger and exclamation, I would say, no. Is your daddy white then? Now I'm ready to fight. No. Why would they invade my personal space to ask me if one of my parents was white? I didn't even know any white people. I mean, my parents were black, indigenous, and maybe white somewhere back in generations ago, but no one that we knew of. This would happen several times throughout my childhood. I remember once when I was attending school in Evergreen, Alabama with my cousins, we were walking home from school one day, and as we passed this elderly gentleman on the porch with a shotgun on his lap, he yelled, hey! What y'all doing with that white girl? And we ran as fast as we could, laughing. And my older cousin, Eugene, yelled back, that ain't no white girl, that's my cousin. (laughs) Incidents like this happened often. An older cousin or a niece or nephew would get into a conversation or an altercation with someone who was questioning my place in society, 
or whether I was somehow white or had white parentage. This would happen throughout my childhood, and these incidents would continue to happen in different ways as a young adult, but they had subsided. Most people knew by then that while I did not fit their stereotype or description of a black woman, they dare not approach me and ask me about my heritage. When I was 26, I gave birth to my first child, a girl. I was living in Panama, and my dad had become really ill, so we came to Detroit to visit. And while I was here with relatives, I was sitting at the kitchen counter one day with a close relative, and we were having a conversation, and she was going on and on about how everyone was saying I was going to have a girl, and some people said I would have a boy. And she said how she had gotten into this discussion because my mom said that I would have a girl first, and she named all the people who had girls first, and she was explaining why. And then very casually, this relative said, well, I don't know why you think that. Lisa was adopted. And she continued on in her conversation, but in that moment, I froze. I felt heat throughout my body. I felt everything close in. And I said softly, I didn't know. I would say it more than once, and she never picked up. I just kept saying, I didn't know. I would nurse my baby, cry, smile and laugh with family members, I shared it with no one, and I just kept saying, I didn't know. All those memories began to flood back. All those times someone questioned my place in society, my blackness, my Detroitness. And I kept saying, I didn't know. Could it possibly be? I couldn't even wrap my mind around the possibility that there was a white parent. Where did I come from? Who was I? I didn't know. Well, a few years later, my parents found out that I knew, and so they took me into their room, and the conversation went something like this. We met you when you were six months old. And we loved you from the very first time we saw you. And we have loved you ever since. We are your family, and we love you dearly. The documents were destroyed when you turned 18 years old because we are your parents. It took a long time to deal with the loneliness, the feeling of abandonment, the shame, the not knowing when I, would, when I would look in the mirror as a kid and I would say, I don't see what others see. I, I'm just me. I'm just Lisa. I'm loved. I'm cared for. I have this great family. I fit in. But now I question all of that. And so, 30 years later, lots of work on forgiveness, dance, culture, a great, wonderful marriage and relationship, two more children and a grandson later, I've put the pieces back together because I'm very clear on who I am. As I opened up the unidentifying information, I was able to read the story of my birth. My mother was a 19-year-old, unwed, black teen 
who was unable to keep me. I came out, red, fiery hair, blue eyes, and the palest of skins. She talked about how she wished she could keep me, but she didn't have support. The agency even talked about how they had difficulty placing me because they like to keep children with their race. Black people thought I was way too light for them, and white people were very unsure how I would turn out with a black mother. So in walks into the scene, into my world, into my life. At six months old, my mother and my father to the foster care agency where they said they fell in love with me the first time they saw me. And they provided for me the safety, the love, the security that I needed to develop and become the woman I am today. So placing me in the right place and the right time for the right parents. And I will always know who I am. I am Mayawa Akpe Oluwa Lisa Reynolds. I am a black woman. Thank you, Mayawa Lisa Reynolds and Stories from the Stage. And next up on Arts Express, Painkiller a conversation with actor Michael Pere and his film targeting those legal drug peddlers profiting off that other pandemic that has unleashed deaths from drug overdoses across this country, those pharmaceutical corporations and doctors reaping the profits. And not simply another vigilante revenge thriller, though that too. Pere, best known for his starring turn in Eddie and the Cruisers, delves into something extraordinary about painkillers that his co-star and the screenwriter Tom Parnell actually lost his own son to a prescription drug overdose, and the emotional tension of Parnell portraying a character confronting Paré's evil doctor. Paré also ventures down memory lane, comparing and contrasting being directed by John Carpenter in Village of the Damned to his turn in Walter Hill's Streets of Fire, and memories of that Superman icon Christopher Reeve on the set of Village of the Damned over curry dinner together. First, some scenes from Painkiller, then Michael Pere. There are more than 70,000 overdose deaths each year in this country. Most people still envision big boats smuggling in the dope low-level dealers selling it on the street. Yeah, that still goes on. But the real culprits is the pharmaceutical companies. The doctors, they grease. You come into my office to tell me what to do and how to live? Just give advice. You take your advice. Get the hell out of here. It's not the answer I was looking for. We're Americans who died of opioid abuse and were killed in the Vietnam War. As long as it makes money, nobody gives a damn. That's not a conspiracy. You tell me what it is. Fear-mongering. Fake news being pushed by a liar like you. You got a lot of nerve showing up here. I'm surprised you even knew about this side of town. You kidding me? I grew up on this side of town. So what are we gonna do about the legalized pushers, hmm? People to their better nature? 
got no better nature. Are you the CEO of Ad6 Chemicals? Yeah. Who the hell are you? Your conscience. You know, I keep hearing they're going after doctors next. They are. They'll throw a few to the wolves. Optics matter. serious guy. I think I'm getting under your partner's skin. Hello? Hi. Good morning. Hello. This is Michael Paré. All right. Now, Painkiller is in some ways a conventional vigilante thriller, but in many ways it is not with quite a passionate theme about the dangers and deaths from prescription painkillers, who's responsible and who's profiting from this other ongoing pandemic. What can you say about that element of the film and drawing you into the production? Well, you know, the idea that the main premise is that there's a conspiracy by the big pharmaceutical companies to... uh, enter the drug business. You know, uh, oxycodone is in direct competition with fentanyl and heroin. You know, people buy oxycodone on the street just like they buy heroin and uh, fentanyl. And uh, that's what's really scary is, and I think that's what motivates our lead, is that it's really not just one person. So he goes after the whole idea, the whole concept of government-sanctioned drug dealing. As we know, you know, there's the oxycodone and the prescription painkillers are an epidemic in many parts of the United States. I mean, many more people are dying from drug overdoses than than they are from anything else. Mm. You know, I mean, car accidents, cigarettes, um, and drug addiction and drug overdoses are, you know, the plagues of the United States. And Tom Parnell, an attorney in real life turned screenwriter and also co-starring with you in the film, based Painkiller, on the actual overdose death of his young son, as we see in the film's postscript. What are your thoughts about that and how it brought to the film an emotional impact for you as well with a nearly documentary effect? Well, you know, I, I, I got to know Tom pretty well and we continued, uh, you know, communicating and, and talking about, you know, future projects. So just the the heartbreak of uh, his son accidentally becoming addicted. I think his son had uh, some kind of accident. They put him on oxycodone, and before you know it, he was addicted and, and overdosed. Mm. You know, the idea that, you know, they turned this stuff loose on kids, um, you know, it, it's just so dangerous. The human beings are so fragile, you know, and, you know, opiates are so powerful. Life is so hard, you know, to just keep afloat. And then, you know, it, it's just heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Every, I think every family has either a, a family, a relative or a family friend who has been affected by uh, drug addiction. And, um, you know, it just goes unnoticed. Um, by the politicians and, and law enforcement, 
you know, they go after street drugs, but prescription drugs, uh, oxycodone, and what's the other one, Percocet and Vicodin, and now there's, uh, you know, Adderall and Xanax and, and all of these drugs that just do not help people cope, actually. They just deaden their feelings. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's, if you really think about it, they're dumbing down the population in order to control them, and that's a scary idea. And what part did Parnell play in any discussions with you as to making this story come vividly alive and real? Well, he was the writer and he was the actor, but uh, no, he didn't uh, tell me anything I didn't know. Hmm. Yeah. And what was it like for you beyond playing the medical villain as a character in a face-off with Parnell, bringing to his character a real-life heartbreaking tragedy? Well, you know, it, we, it really was a dramatization of something that actually happened to him. It's like the difference between watching a documentary and a, and a, and a movie about, you know, the real yeah. event. So, um, you know, Tom was, you know, his emotions were right on just below the surface, just a patina of control. But uh, I know he was very, you know, it was a very important movie to him. Yeah. Also, on another note, you once said that the favorite character of all that you've played was Eddie in the classic Eddie and the Cruisers. Please elaborate. Well, it was my first movie. I was playing uh, a supporting role on a television series at the time called Greatest American Hero. And over the hiatus, I got this uh, rock and roll movie where I was uh, the title character. So it, I went from being a, you know, a new guy in a supporting role to a, a lead. And, you know, my career really started from there. Yeah. You know, it's like when you're just, uh, it's like I broke onto the, the scene with Eddie and it's like, wow, that's, that's why it was my favorite. And it was a very, very artsy production. You know, we had several weeks of rehearsal and then we got on location and we did all that classical, uh, you know, actors uh, workshopping of the, all the important scenes. We stayed in a hotel for two weeks before we started shooting for rehearsals. And, um, you know, it was you know, like right out of the acting textbooks, right out of uh, an actor prepares. It was really a wonderful experience all around. And how would you compare and contrast Walter Hill directing you in Streets of Fire with, say, John Carpenter in Village of the Damned? Well, Walter, was he's a writer-producer, right? Marty was a writer, actor, director. So Marty was much more into the mind of the actors, where Walter was uh, not. You know, writers, you know, spend a lot of time alone, where actor directors spend a lot of time in acting class and understand what it is that motivates the characters, where Walter, you know, really just gave you the script and said, play the, the role as it's written. Uh, John Carpenter, um, you know, and, and Walter had a, a great editor and great uh, soundtrack and great uh, producers. Where John Carpenter, he does it all. He wrote, directed, produced, scored, and edited. He even did the helicopter shot. You know, he has a helicopter life. I mean, John Carpenter does it all. And Walter writes and directs. And Marty wrote, directed, and Marty even played a role in uh, Eddie and the Cruises. 
And what are your memories of working with that late icon, Christopher Reeve, on Village of the Damned? Well, you know, Christopher Reeve, you know, one of my favorite scenes, and I think one of the most romantic speeches ever caught on film was when Christopher Reeve takes Margot Kidder flying the first time. Mm. She has that monologue about how she's falling in love with this guy. And it was so powerful. I mean, I can still watch it today and it brings a tear to my eye. Uh. So I was a big fan of his. And, um, you know, we, we were on the set and he's, you know, he's, he's like, like a ubermensch. I mean, he's like 6'4", he's in incredible shape, handsome, well-educated, you know, a kind, compassionate person. Uh, we, we cooked dinner up at uh, John's house one night. I made mm. curry, and he was very complimentary about that. <laughs> and uh, when John asked him to do a joke about uh, the test your strength machine, you know, he was all for it. He was, just, he was really a, a genuine nice person. But I got to tell you, you know, you stand next to him, and he's like, you know, the Uberman. You know, uh, it's kind of, you know, I've never met anybody else like that. Yeah. And how do you feel being raised by a single working mother when at only five years old among her 10 children, your father passed away? How do you feel that informed your life as a person and as an actor? Well, I got to tell you, my mother was probably one of the most powerful people I ever met. Because when my father died, she was only like 34 or 36 years old, and she had 10 children. Yeah. And uh, she went to work. She worked for 25 years for uh, Marymount College. And, um, you know, all of her children turned out okay. They all went to college except for me. I went to uh, cooking school. Mm. And uh, they all have careers. And, you know, she had a bunch of grandchildren. And, um, you know, the idea that women are the weaker sex just did not, never entered my consciousness. Mm. I've always worked really well with women. I mean, directors and producers and writers and actors, actresses. Um, so as an actor, it was like, you know, there was never any, um, you know, there was, as far as chauvinist, you're supposed to be very polite to women. <laughs> Not only, okay. But other than that, you know, the, uh, the idea of the weaker sex, Forget about it. That that was never in my mind. You know, they may not be able to bench press 315 pounds. Well, some can, I guess. But uh, the weaker sex, no. The will of my mother was like iron. Everybody went to college. Everybody worked as soon as they turned 14. Everybody uh, did well in school. You know, it was, uh, you know, I don't know what to say about it. Yeah. But, you know, I was interviewed early on and I said, my mother was a saint. I mean, when she died, she went straight to heaven. She did her, her duty as a, as, a, as a human being. And, um, you know, I've, I have great respect for women in general. Yeah. You know, so. Well, your respectful attitude towards women might seem in contrast to the tough guys you play. Would you say you're anything like these tough and scary characters in real life that you play? Um... <laughs> You know, the thing that actors do is you have to imagine if you were born in those circumstances and had to deal with these issues, you know, that's how you bring truth to it. But I don't think I'm ever going to find myself in a situation. I mean, if I was in the military, you know, if I went into law enforcement, I had had an uncle in the FBI, and he was a very serious guy. And uh, am I like that? No, I'm an, I'm an artist. I've been, you know, 
I started studying acting when I was 20. You know, I'm, I've been, I'm doing it for 40 years. So I, I've never, you know, hunted a bad guy down and I never, you know, I mean, I've trained in martial arts and, uh, but I spend more time cooking than uh, you know, when I'm not working than I do being a tough guy. I'll tell you that. And any final word on what you hope audiences will understand about painkiller? I hope it will bring uh, a greater awareness to the danger of it. And the, I think there's some serious corruption involved. You know, the, uh, the potential for addiction from prescription pain medicine is very big. You know, it's a very big uh, issue that's not really being addressed enough. And I noticed that you have at least 30 films in production or coming out. What can you say about that, and how do you manage that? Um, well, you know, I, like I say, th- I, this is what I do for a living, and it's also my passion. I can't do anything else. Nobody's going to hire an actor. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what have you been doing? <laughs> um, you know, maybe I could be a spokesperson for something. But, you know, let's say 20% of the things that are in pre-production will actually go to camera, you know, so you got to keep a lot of lines out there and hope, uh, you know, one of the hot ones comes up. And one final question. When Michael Pere looks into the mirror, what does he see? Um, you know, I'm, I, I, I'm struggling to understand humanity, you know, and bring to my work, an understanding of each character that I play, you know, so I've got two things that I'm directing this year. And, um, you know, so now I'm, I'm trying to use all the different characters in the cast to tell a story instead of just one character. So who do I see? I see a father, a husband, uh, an actor, a writer, director, producer, um, you know, I'm I'm in the arts. You know, and I I know it, it's, there's a you know there's a, there's a, a a general opinion about calling yourself an artist, but you know this is what I've been doing for 40 years: acting, writing, producing, and now directing. So I'm in the arts. Yeah. So I see Michael Parade, the father, husband, artist. And anything you can say about what you're directing? Um, well, one is a. Uh, action thriller at 40,000 feet, and another one is a monster movie. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for calling into our show. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, putting our show out there and raising the awareness. Thank you. I'm going to go have lunch with the director of Painkiller in a couple hours. Tell him <laughs> I, we did this. Prairie. Oh, how cool. How cool. Uh, wow. Prairie Miller. Thank you so much, Prairie. I'm from New York. I was born and raised in no, Brooklyn. Yeah, and my mother taught, well, she didn't taught, she worked at Marymount College, which is the college from uh, on the waterfront. This girlfriend went to school. So, I mean, New York is, you know, I have seven, well, there's six brothers and sisters that still live in the New York area. Well, I hope, I hope they hear this. Yes. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, bye. Prairie. Okay. Bye. And Painkiller is being released on May 4th. And coming up next on Arts Express, the rise of the copyright cops. Who are they and what are they up to in running interference on police crimes against the population? 
political analyst and contributor to the show, Jason Unruh, is on the case. Something happening here What it is ain't exactly clear There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going It appears that the police in the United States have come up with a new tactic for fighting people who are lawfully recording them while on the job. And this was discovered by Los Angeles activist Senate Dermond, who accused a Beverly Hills police officer of using copyrighted music to prevent footage of him from being shared in the public. Now, Devermont has over 300,000 followers on Instagram, is well-known in police circles as a guy who films his interactions with police officers, all of which is perfectly legal and highly justified, given the way that police choose to operate, particularly in the United States. Now, according to Devermont, the uh, publicly sharing the phone number of the officer with his Instagram viewers is justified, whatever it takes to get the job done, he tells Fair, following a series of complaints about the bureaucracy at the police station. When a police officer hands you their card, that is their public number. That is the number for the public to get a hold of them. That's It's not unlawful to share that information. It's a public contact. While the officer remained calm during the entire incident, he briefly stopped responding when Devermont didn't want to say how many people were watching his live stream. He was live streaming his encounter with the police on the website. And the officer took out his phone and started playing the track Centuria from the ska band Sublime in order to trigger a copyright. Oh, you're trying to take the licensing down. This is a... This is a form of uh, stopping free speech. He's playing copyrighted music, hoping that my live gets taken down. So I'm going to end it now. I'm going to jump on here. But that's what they do. They play licensed music. Beverly Hills PD places licensed music. I'm asking you a question. And you're not now doing your job, are you? He says, I believe Sergeant Fair asked Billy Flair is using copyright music to keep me from being able to play these videos on social media. He isn't alone. I have a video of this happening with other with another officer who played music while I was talking. Essentially, you record their interactions and they play a copyrighted song. And then the filters, particularly things like YouTube, which would be the largest video sharing site in the world, the algorithm would automatically catch the song and uh, either delete the audio or remove the video. And that was the whole point. That's why they're doing this. When police officers start playing music in the middle of an interaction, not only is that kind of, well, unprofessional because you're trying to communicate with people and hindering that communication would be going against doing your job, but it's also unethical trying to deliberately trigger a DMCA on or an automated a copyright thing on someone who's trying to film the police, which is perfectly legal to do. 
So you see exactly what they're doing here. We're not doing anything wrong, but we're going to keep coming up with ways to stop you from filming us not doing anything wrong. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of these situations. However, it doesn't appear to be all that effective thus far. Devermont initially pulled his livestream offline, but later posted the video with music, which still exists online today. However, the problem here is that other police services are picking up this idea and playing copyrighted music in order to hinder the ability of the video to be shared. And if you didn't do anything wrong, then you have nothing to hide and you'd have no reason to try to prevent these videos from being shared. Reporting from Niagara Falls, Jason Unruh. What a field day for the heat A thousand people in the street Singing songs and carrying signs Mostly say hooray for our side It's time we stop, hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Paranoia strikes deep Into your life it will creep when you're always afraid Step out of line The man come And take you away We better stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Stop Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down And you can hear more of Jason Unruh's in-depth political analysis at his channel on YouTube. And now on Arts Express, British actor Mark Rylance performing a scene from Shakespeare's Henry V. Jack Shalom will elaborate. for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the swelling scene. Then should the warlike Harry, like himself, assume the port of Mars, and at his heels should famine, sword, and fire crouch for employment. The flat unraised spirits that have dared on this unworthy scaffold to bring forth so great an object. Can this cockpit hold the vasty fields of France? Or may we cram within this wooden O the very casks that suppose within the girdle of these walls are now confined Two mighty monarchies, whose high, uprearing, and abutting fronts the perilous narrow ocean parts asunder. Hey, 
piece out our imperfections with your thoughts into a thousand parts, divide one man, and make imaginary puissance. Think, when we talk of horses... <laughs> ...that you see them printing their proud hoofs in the receiving earth. For it is your thoughts, your thoughts, that now must deck our kings. Hi, this is Jack Shalom, and I've got a mystery for you. Who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Now, that might sound as silly as who was buried in Grant's tomb or what color was George Washington's white horse. But on this 457th anniversary of William Shakespeare's birth, I have to admit that everything I thought I knew about Shakespeare's life may well be wrong. I was brought to that conclusion by a recent film called Last Will and Testament and a new book titled North by Shakespeare, written by Michael Blanding. Both of these works posit that heresy of heresies, that William Shakespeare of Stratford-upon-Avon was not the fellow who originally wrote the 37 plays usually attributed to him, including Romeo and Juliet, Othello, Hamlet, and so on. Well, the mystery of who did write those plays has as many twists and turns as an Agatha Christie mystery novel, because essentially any theory of alternate composition has to prove two things. First, the theory has to explain why the author of the plays couldn't possibly have been William Shakespeare, and secondly, explain, well, if William Shakespeare of Stratford didn't write those plays, then who the heck did? In its crudest form, the argument goes that the son of a glovemaker, as Shakespeare of Stratford was, with little formal education, could not have written such erudite, sparkling plays. And besides, how could a commoner know so much about life, philosophy, politics, court intrigue, and the worldly affairs that permeate the plays? Well, in the past, I've always shrugged off those objections as the elite snobbery of those who think that anyone not of royal blood could not possibly be a genius, those dumb peasants. Besides, I thought from my reading of Shakespeare, it was clear to me that if nothing else, the man who wrote those plays had to be someone who was intimately acquainted with the theater in a practical way, not some academic or nobleman sitting in some imagined or real ivory tower. So when I first started to view Roland Emmerich's documentary film Last Will and Testament, I wasn't particularly prepared to be persuaded about it at all. But I think in retrospect that the film does do a good job of laying out the case for the first part of the mystery, why the man from Stratford could not have written the plays. And the argument is laid out by no less than such Shakespearean actors as Derek Jacobi, Vanessa Redgrave and Mark Rylance. And when people of that caliber are talking about Shakespeare, I listen.
pillar objection to Shakespeare's authorship that they lay out is this. The man from Stratford just doesn't seem to have lived the life of a writer. Though all agree that Shakespeare was an actor, and we do know that he had a double share in the acting company that he co-founded, there's not a single scrap of literary output that's been found in his own handwriting. No letters, no poems, and certainly no plays. No literary work of any kind, just six shaky signatures of Shakespeare that hardly paint the picture of a confident professional writer skilled in the use of a quill. But much worse, though we have Shakespeare's will, there's no mention of his library, books, or manuscripts. That's the fact that pushed me over the edge. Are we to believe that the man who wrote 37 genius plays, many of them adaptations of previous plays and works of history, had no library or books to pass on at his death? No source materials? No manuscripts that he wished to pass on to his heirs or friends? And who never gave an education to any of his daughters so that they might read and appreciate his life's work? Does this sound like any other author we've ever heard of? And moreover, why is it that when Shakespeare died in 1616, not one of the contemporary playwrights publicly or privately noted his death. No eulogies, no letters, no proclamations found that speak of the death of the brilliant playwright Will Shakespeare, whose plays were enormously popular in his own time. Playwright Ben Jonson did eventually write a eulogy for Shakespeare, praising his writing, but that was in 1623, seven years after Shakespeare's death. It's very odd, to say the least. But now we get to the second portion of the mystery. If Shakespeare didn't write those plays, then who did? And here is where I think the film Last Will falls down. They present a persuasive candidate, but ignore one of the biggest objections to their candidate's case. Let me tell you who they propose. They propose a, a man called Edward de Vere, who was the Earl of Oxford, as the author of the plays. Now, it's not a crazy theory as theories go, and it's one that has a bit of history. The Earl of Oxford was most famously proposed back in 1901 by a man named Thomas Loney, and Loney wrote, that once you accept that the man from Stratford couldn't have been the author, like a detective, you could make a list of criteria that you would expect when looking for the author of the plays. So, checklist. Among them, you're looking for, boom, someone who had daily contact with court life and intrigue. Boom, someone who had been around actors in the theater. Boom, someone who had an extensive education. Boom. And especially someone who was on the outs with the rest of the court, a disaffected courtier. So in essence, Loney was saying that if you want to find out who wrote those plays, look for someone very much like the character of Hamlet. Well, Loney thought he had found such a man, Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, and it's not a bad guess. First of all, De Vere's father had a theater company, 
and passed it down to Edward. The company performed plays at the court to curry Elizabeth's favor. And Edward de Vere was known to be a writer as well. His poetry was praised by contemporaries, and he was thought to be the playwright of a play that was the forerunner of Romeo and Juliet. When you put all this together and more, it's not an unconvincing case, and one can understand why not only Jacoby and Redgrave think de Vere is the guy, but Mark Twain, Orson Welles, and Sigmund Freud thought so as well. But... There's one big problem with that theory that the film never addresses. De Vere died in 1604, and yet there are a whole slew of plays that most scholars date to after that year, including King Lear, Macbeth, Coriolanus, Cymbeline, The Winter's Tale, and most particularly, The Tempest. So unless one thinks that a dead man wrote those plays, that's obviously a glaring hole in the Edward de Vere theory, it's not necessarily a deal breaker. It's possible to come up with explanations. But the film, unfortunately, gives no explanation at all. It only mentions that De Vere dies in 1604, and then the film kind of peters out. I think somewhat dishonestly, it never mentions that though De Vere died, the hits kept on coming. <laughs> So, where to turn to next? Well, lots of candidates have been suggested over the years, including Queen Elizabeth herself. But very recently, a new book has been published called North by Shakespeare, which proposes another candidate. The book is written by journalist Michael Blanding, and Blanding tells the story of an unconventional researcher, a computer nerd named Dennis McCarthy, who got the bright idea less than a decade ago, to run Shakespeare's plays through plagiarism software to see what would turn up as matches with large book bases like Google Books. And much to McCarthy's amazement, when he looked for matches among 16th century books, he uncovered hit after hit that all came from a single author, a disaffected English nobleman, like Hamlet, 16 years Shakespeare's senior named Sir Thomas North. McCarthy found literally scores of parallels with phrases and sentences that were alike in both Shakespeare's plays and North's prose translations of some Italian works and even some private papers of North's. Bingo! It was an incredible discovery. I mean, even if you didn't believe that North had written the plays, Clearly, at the very least, Shakespeare had to have been aware of North's prose work and must have relied heavily on them as sources. But Blanding's book explains that as McCarthy dived even deeper into the facts of Sir Thomas North's life, a larger theory was starting to take shape. The very details and themes of North's life seemed to show up in the plays. All the brotherly sibling rivalry in Shakespeare's plays, Hamlet, Lear, The Tempest, seemed to be an echo of the relation North had with his richer older brother, quite contentious. The suicidal thoughts of Hamlet seemed to be based on North's 
hopeless forays as a military captain in a cruel Irish war. And the warnings of foreign alliances in the plays could be taken as North's warnings to the Protestant Queen Elizabeth against her sometime wish to reconcile with the Catholic European powers. So what McCarthy finally comes to is this kind of compromise position, and here it becomes more complicated. North was a ward of the Earl of Leicester who had a theater company who performed for Elizabeth, just like the Earl of Oxford's company. And so North had an opportunity also to put plays before her. And McCarthy's complete thesis is that North converted his own prose into verse and drama for the Earl of Leicester's company, and that some of the players in the Earl of Leicester's company later went on to become members of Shakespeare's acting company. So McCarthy thinks that Shakespeare took those North plays and revised them for his own company. So while it's true that William Shakespeare wrote the plays usually attributed to Shakespeare, McCarthy thinks that North first wrote his own plays from his own source materials that McCarthy discovered, and that Shakespeare then revised and prepared those plays for his own company of players later on. Well, I'm not sure I bought all of McCarthy's theories, but journalist Michael Blanding does an excellent job in his book of following around McCarthy as he goes from Shakespeare conference to Shakespeare conference, attempting to put forth his theories to skeptical academics who finally have to admit grudgingly that he's on to something. Blanding also does a very good job on providing the historical background on Elizabethan England that the reader needs to fully understand McCarthy's theory. And it's a fascinating history. Even if you don't believe a word of McCarthy's theory, or even if you don't care about who done it, if you're a history buff, you'll be absolutely fascinated by the machinations of church and state described during this period. You'll be engrossed in the politics and personalities of the time that Blanding brings to life. But maybe, just maybe, McCarthy is right and he's found the answer to the greatest literary whodunit in history. I've been talking about the film Last Will and Testament, available on Amazon Prime, and the book North by Shakespeare, written by Michael Blanding and published by Hachette Books. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller exiting as in the famous Shakespearean stage direction, Pursued by a Bear. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, Expression in the Arts. And if you'd like to express yourself, too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.